Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 88. Last week, I wrapped up the priestly vestments found in both Exodus chapters 28 and 39. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the ordination of the first priests, all laid out in Exodus chapter 29, working through the sacrifices and wrapping up with the bronze wash basin. And with that, let's get started. In Exodus chapter 29, along with Leviticus 8, we're told how the priest will be ordained, and the process I outline is essentially the two passages brought together. God instructed Moses to take one young bull and two unblemished rams, and keep this unblemished aspect of the sacrificial lambs in mind. When you hear Jesus being called the Lamb of God, it's partly in reference to this. The lambs were visibly unblemished, and Jesus was unblemished by sin. Back in Exodus, the livestock was offered alongside unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. All made a choice wheat flour. All of the baked foodstuffs were to be put in a single basket and brought with the livestock to the tabernacle. Then, Aaron and sons were to gather at the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash with water. After cleansing, Moses placed the vestments on Aaron. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its base to consecrate them. Then Moses poured anointing oil on Aaron's head and in doing so, anointed him as a priest. Which gets me to a short sidebar. The Hebrew word, Messiah, translates to our word, Messiah, and it also translates to the word, anointed. So, think of a Messiah as being the anointed one. Also, it was only Aaron as the high priest who was anointed. So, only one anointed one. Sidebar over and back to the text. Moses then put the tunics, sashes, and headdresses on Aaron's sons. And with all of this, the whole of Aaron's male lot were ordained into the priesthood. Next came the livestock. The bull was brought to the front of the tent of meeting, where Aaron and sons laid their now-ordained hands on the bull's head. After this, while still at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the bull was slaughtered. Then some of the bull's blood was spread by Moses' finger onto the horns of the altar, and the remaining blood was poured at the base of the altar. All of this presumed to be at the altar of burnt offering, as we're still outside of the tent, and the altar of incense hasn't been introduced in the narrative. But we're not quite done with the bull. From the text, where God is talking to Moses, You shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails and the appendage of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and turn them into smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, its skin, and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp in a sin offering." And then the rams. Aaron and sons would lay their hands on the head of one of the rams. It was then slaughtered, and its blood dashed against all sides of the altar. Picking up in the text, Then you shall cut the ram into its parts, and wash its entrails and legs, 
and put them with its parts and its head, and turn the whole realm into smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing odor, an offering by fire to the Lord. End quote. Cue the second realm, which by now has to be wondering what's going on. Aaron and sons lay their hands on the head of this realm, and it's slaughtered. From the text, take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the lobes of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet, and dash the rest of the blood against all sides of the altar. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his vestments, and on his sons and his sons' vestments with him. Then he and his vestments shall be holy, as well as his sons and his sons' vestments. End quote. Moses was then to take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the intestines, part of the liver, both kidneys, and the right thigh. And we're parenthetically told that the reason for the right thigh is that the ram is the one of ordination which probably meant something to them, but to us needs further explanation and leads to a curious question, the type I like to ask. Why the right thigh? It's thought this relates to so many things biblical that point out the right side of something, like sitting at the right hand of God. It's also thought to symbolize the authority and power of the priesthood, as seen in Psalm 110, where God tells the writer to sit at his right hand. But what about the application of sacrificial blood to the ears, thumbs, and toes? Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish-Egyptian philosopher, wrote that, quoting, The fully consecrated must be pure in words and actions and in life. For words are judged by hearing, the hand is the symbol of action, and the foot of the pilgrimage of life. So the body parts where blood was applied held a specific meaning. Back to the text. Moses, along with Aaron and sons, were also to take one loaf of bread, one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer from the basket where they were previously placed, and put all of these items, including some parts of the sacrificed rams, into the hands of Aaron and his sons. They were then to raise their food-filled hands before the Lord as an elevation offering. After that, the items were placed on the altar of burnt offering and turned to smoke. We're told that the smoke had a pleasing aroma to God. Then, the breast of the ram is raised up as an elevation offering and given to Moses. The rest of the ram was given to Aaron and his sons. They were to boil all of the ram in a holy place and eat it, along with the bread. They are even instructed to eat the meal at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And there are to be no guests, only the consecrated priest. As for leftovers, anything not consumed by the next morning is to be burned. This whole process was repeated every day for seven days, and at the end of the week, only then was everything deemed holy. The whole week, none of the party, not Moses, not Aaron, not any of his sons, were allowed to go outside of the entrance of the tent of meeting, so they were to stay in the tabernacle's courtyard. And one more note. Because Aaron and his sons were not truly ordained and consecrated until after the end of the week, they were not allowed to consume the right thigh of the ram. That's why it was burned on the altar, at least according to some scholars. 
And that's it for the consecration and ordination of the priest. But there's something bigger here. Before this time, sacrifice and worship was the duty of the extended family. Just think back to all of the altars built by the patriarchs I've covered thus far. But with the Mosaic Covenant and all of the happenings at Sinai, sacrifice and worship became the responsibility and function of the priestly class, something to a slightly different degree lasts through this day. At that time, and after the ordination of Aaron and Sons, a daily sacrificial offering was instituted, which is the next topic in Exodus. A daily slaughter of two lambs, one brought to the altar at dawn and sacrificed around 9 a.m., as best as they could in this era before clocks. The other lamb was brought to the altar at noon, when the sun was at its zenith and sacrificed around 3 p.m., pausing for a second and fast-forwarding to the Gospel of Mark in the 15th chapter. We're told that Jesus was hung on the cross at 9 a.m., darkness came over the land at noon, and Jesus died at 3, all aligning with the timing of the sacrificing of the two lambs at the tabernacle, unpausing. The text tells us the second sacrifice occurred in the evening, but given what we currently know about their society, this was around 3 p.m. This time is not found in the text, but instead is from the writings of Josephus, where he posited that the evening sacrifice occurred at the ninth hour in Hebrew time, so three in the afternoon, our time. Keep in mind that the Jewish evening is essentially our afternoon, since the next day begins at sundown. And while the accuracy of some of his writings have been called into question, the temple rituals were likely one of the topics he writes with a great deal of authority. Josephus was descended, through his father, from the priestly order of Jehoiarab. This made his family very highly ranked among all the priestly families. He was also a descendant of the high priest Jonathan, who served as a high priest of the second temple, with his service in the highest rank occurring between about 410 and 371 BC. Josephus was raised and educated in Jerusalem for service as a priest, and therefore would have been frequently exposed to the official temple practices. And for clarification, do keep in mind that at Mount Sinai, the sun can set as early as 4.23 p.m. Centuries later, when the tabernacle was located in Jerusalem, the situation wasn't much different, with the sun setting as early as 4.34 p.m. So, 3 p.m. really was the evening to them. At this same time of year, Midday would occur just after 11 a.m., so what they would have thought of as noon is a bit different than our concept of it. Keep all of this in mind when you see time references in the text. Moving along. The twice-daily sacrifice of two lambs was done every day, six days a week. On the Sabbath, the offering was doubled. The entire day for the priest revolved around this timetable. Other sacrifices were offered, but these two, or four, depending on the day of the week, the lamb offering was the most important. And the twice daily sacrificing of lambs would start at Sinai and carry on until the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, some 2,000 years later, through the lives of Saul, David, Solomon, and everyone else in the Old Testament, and all of those in the New as well. 
So if we circle back to the whole process, we can see how the instructions were followed through the subsequent generations. Just like the sacrificial lambs, the bathing with water became a daily part of the priestly purification process. During the second temple period, the priests began their day before dawn with a ritual immersive bath. The priests who were assigned to service for the day woke up with a trumpet signal that began the last watch before dawn. It's thought that this signal occurred sometime around 3 a.m. The sounding trumpet was also known as the cock crow and is even referenced in the book of Mark. The supervising priest would call the lower priest to assemble and the daily worship duties were assigned by casting lots. Priests wishing to participate in the lot casting process would first have to cleanse themselves through the ritual immersion and then dress in the priestly underwear and tunics. After this ritual bathing and dressing, if they were chosen to perform the daily religious duties, they were only required to rewash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle. This was done at the bronze basin, which was at the top of the bronze stand and was found between the tent of meeting and the altar, which is a good segue into the bronze basin, even though it requires me to skip over the half-shekel census tax required in Exodus 30. I'll get to this offering soon enough in the next episode. Just after the half-shekel tax is the basin, where the text reads, The Lord spoke to Moses, You shall make a bronze basin with a bronze stand for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. With the water, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to make an offering by fire to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a perpetual ordinance for them, for him and for his descendants throughout their generations." Quote. You will sometimes see the basin called a laver, like it's called in the King James. It was placed outside of the tent of meeting, between the tabernacle door and the altar of burnt offering. In it, Aaron and sons, and every priest that followed, washed their hands and their feet before commencing any priestly service. Both the laver and its base were made of bronze, according to chapter 38, made specifically from repurposed bronze mirrors donated by the Israelite women who served at the tabernacle door. And these weren't mirrors like they contained glass. Instead, think mirrors where the metal surface was polished enough for an adequate reflection. The basin, like everything else in the tabernacle, was anointed with oil and made holy. We're not given many more details about this basin. There's no word on how big it was or how much water it held. It's assumed to have contained enough water for four priests to simultaneously wash their hands and feet. And that's it for the original bronze basin. But we do know that in Solomon's temple, it was replaced by something known as a molten sea. And in this case, it's sea as an ocean. And we know a bit more about this large basin. From 1 Kings chapter 7, it was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, and 5 cubits high. A line of 30 cubits would encircle it completely. Under its brim were panels all around it, each of ten cubits, surrounding the sea. There were two rows of panels, cast when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, 
three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them. The hindquarters of each were toward the inside. Its thickness was a handbreadth. Its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths, end quote. Almost the same description is given in 2 Chronicles chapter 4. Except instead of 2,000 baths, it was said to hold 3,000 baths, so 50% larger in volume. Let me put all of these measurements into understandable units and attempt to paint a word picture. Think of a large round basin, about 15 feet or 4.5 meters from edge to edge. Next, we're told that the perimeter of the circle was 30 cubits, which takes me back to my early education where I had to come up with a memory device to be able to recall that the perimeter of a circle is the diameter multiplied by pi. It worked in Solomon's temple just as well as it works today. So 45 feet are almost 14 meters in circumference. The sea was said to be five cubits deep, so seven and a half feet or two and a quarter meters deep. And it must have been supported by an elevated base as the panels that surround it are 10 cubits high, so 15 feet or 4.5 meters tall. So if the base were 10 cubits tall and it was 5 cubits deep, overall it was 15 cubits, so 22.5 feet or almost 7 meters in total height. The metal of the basin was a handbreadth thick, so around 4 inches or 10 centimeters. That was a lot of brass, or maybe bronze. And now for the hardest unit conversion. It contained 2,000 baths of water. I did find an online conversion engine that equated this volume to almost 12,000 U.S. gallons, which is almost 44,000 liters. Now, to be honest, I don't trust just any conversion engine, so I set about with my own calculations. But to do so, I had to make one huge assumption and that's that the molten sea was essentially a half-sphere. In doing that, in using the formula for the volume of a sphere divided in half, then Solomon's Basin would have held about 884 cubic feet of water, and there are about 7.5 gallons per cubic foot, so a half-sphere would have held 6,600 U.S. gallons, compared to the 12,000 of the conversion engine. No joy there. Maybe it was a half-cylinder, which would yield about 10,000 gallons. Glad I did my own calculations, but don't miss the point. It was a huge bronze basin, big enough to swim in. According to the Talmud, the basin was not entirely round, as it might be interpreted from the Old Testament. Instead, the upper 40% was round, with the remaining portion being square. And no, I'm not doing that calculation. Sometimes you'll see the vessel referred to as the brazen sea. And just for clarification, brazen simply means brass, like the metal. Or it could have been bronze. The brass, or bronze, take your pick, was likely from plundered, captured cities formerly under the rule of King Hadadezer, the ruler Zoba, essentially located in what is today Syria, and recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 18. The Molten Sea was a large wash basin inside the temple in Jerusalem. It was located in the southeast corner of the court of the temple. And there's a bit of dispute over how it was used. Was it like a large tub, where the priest would enter from the top and bathe? 
or was it just simply a large holding tank for water, where the priest would use merely a stream for washing, nothing conclusive in either direction? At first, the water was supplied by the Gibeonites, likely carried one bucket at a time. This manual process was eventually replaced by an aqueduct that was fed by Solomon's pools. Now, there is a dispute around if Solomon had these reservoirs built, or if they date to later, perhaps Herod. But that's a different topic for a later episode. The 8th century BC king of Judah, Ahaz, would remove the basin from its oxen stand and place it directly on the stone pavement. There goes the theory of it being a half-sphere, as it wouldn't stand upright. It's thought to have been destroyed by the Babylonians and carried off to Babylon, probably in pieces given its size and assumed hefty weight. And with all that is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with the census and half-shekel tax. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.